This is the Uncommon Sense podcast for 3 FM with Amy Mullins. First up on the show, Ben Eltham from New Matilda joined me to talk about federal politics. Then, former Australian ambassador to China Jeff Raby joined me for an in-depth conversation about his new book, China's Grand Strategy and Australia's Future in the New Global Order. We examine China's place in the world, the strategy behind its actions, and we also discuss recent diplomatic relations between Beijing and Canberra, which are at an all-time low. Then, finally, Mary Louise McLaws, an epidemiologist and World Health Organization COVID-19 advisor, joined me to discuss what we have learned globally about the coronavirus and what we must do in Australia to keep COVID-19 transmission at zero or very low. Mary Louise also discusses the risk of viral transmission through aerosol particles, as well as how best to ventilate spaces, what contact tracing best practices, and the concerning development of people chronically ill with so-called long COVID. We're going to be talking all things federal politics, and as I mentioned, this week is the last sitting week before Christmas, so um, there is a lot happening on the legislative front and a lot of um, words being bandied about, like reform, which is kind of amusing because um, we probably shouldn't use the word reform for a lot of things that happen. But, Ben, there is some... Uh, well, there are some very interesting things that have been put to the parliament, one of which is... Um, the first of quite a few legislative uh, bills around um, industrial relations, which is obviously one of the favourite topics of a coalition government and everyone would have um, memory of work choices being um, their last major uh, reform, quote-unquote, but of course they've done a lot since then um, in a piecemeal fashion. Ben, what um, what is the government, the coalition government, proposing to do in this first round of IR changes? Well, good question, Amy. Um, so we don't have the legislation yet, so we don't know exactly what they want to do. But uh, as you might expect from a coalition government, they want to make things easier for bosses. Uh, so the, the reforms, as they're being called by Christian Porter, the Attorney General and the Industrial Relations Minister, are going to be about uh, essentially um, uh, freeing up some of the, the things that employers want to do um, and in the process taking rights away from casual workers. Uh, so there's likely to be um, a legislative amendment to uh, fix up what's going on at the High Court at the moment, which is a big case that's going to the High Court around um, uh, casual workers who worked for many years for a mining company through a labour hire company. And this case has been taken uh, to the federal court. The federal court has ruled that those workers were actually full-time ongoing workers. They weren't casuals. Now, this would create a big liability for employers, something like $39 billion, according to the government. So one of the things the government wants to do is to pass a law to get rid of that liability for employers. Um, and in the process, it'll take rights away from casuals. And the liability uh, so, uh, being those entitlements that people would have for annual and sick leave, for example. 
That's right. Yes. So if, if you're actually an ongoing worker, um, not a casual, then the employer owes you annual leave, sick leave, all those kind of um, national employment standards that are written into the Fair Work Act. Um, uh, of course, if you're just a casual, then the employer can claim, well, we're giving you a so-called 25% loading, so we don't need to pay you any of that. Of course, as the ACTU points out, most casuals aren't actually highly paid and they don't really right. get a high an extra 25%. That's a bit of a myth, really. Um, uh, so we're basically set for another round of industrial relations warfare because the government once again wants to try and deregulate existing workplace laws. Yeah, and um, one of – well, that's – first of all, that case is absolutely fascinating and it's obviously being appealed to the High Court and if the High Court – um, confirmed the the federal court's ruling that would have massive implications for all the back pay that uh, everyone would be owed in terms of sick leave and annual leave entitlements that they could then claim. So, um, yeah, it has massive repercussions. Um, one other part of this um, so-called reform uh, that I believe is going to be put forward in five parts, and this is the first part, and that was this idea that um, somehow the coalition government will be supporting casual workers by um, creating a rule um, that an employer must offer a casual employee um, the opportunity to receive permanent work if they've worked for a period of 12 months with that employer and have had a regular pattern of work for the last six months. Um, and so this is like a very, um, on the face of it, a good proposal, but there are going to be caveats, including the fact that the employers retain a right to refuse it if they have reasonable grounds to do so. Um, so <laughs> yeah. do, do you know what I mean? Like, it's nice on the face of it. It sounds like that might actually like reduce the casualization in the workforce, Ben, doesn't it? But then, you know, people can actually get out of it and say, I'm sorry, the cost of um, actually converting a casual worker to full-time would, um, you know, be too much for my business. So although I'm sure there are employers who would do this in good faith, there might be others who don't want to um, to transition from a casual workforce with the flexibility that that gives them and the um, entitlements that they don't need to pay. Yeah, that's right. You know, and I work at a university, which is exactly this kind of situation. There's an awful lot of casual lecturers and casual tutors um, at my university. Um, and if the university was forced to actually offer them a full-time contract or an ongoing contract after 12 months, that would affect thousands of people. So that would be very, very positive indeed. But, of course, there's all this wriggle room, and we still haven't seen the legislation. But as you rightly point out, you know, um, if, if on the one hand that they can say, oh, well, we, yeah, we don't really have to do it, so yeah, we're mm. just not going to do it. Um, you know, and, and we see that kind of thing all the time in employment law, actually. So if you've got a big carve out that says, oh, well, we've got a grounds for not doing it because, I don't know, it's too expensive. So therefore, we can't do it. Um, now, of course, workers are expensive. <laughs> They're one of the main costs of most businesses. So you've really got to look at the detail of this. And given that we haven't seen the actual bill, we don't know the detail yet. 
No, we've just got what Christian Porter has announced to us. Uh, <laughs> yes, indeed, yes. Which is also a theme, um, getting the information about a bill in a media release or a press conference. Um, so as has Labor said many times, um, they'll wait till they see the actual legislation before they pass a judgment. Um, but one of the other issues that has been bubbling along and that um, certainly we've discussed on this show before is the cashless debit card. Now, this is something um, which has been applied to certain areas. It's been trialled um, in different areas across uh, mainly WA, Queensland, um, but now and South Australia, sorry, but now they're trying to also expand it into the Northern Territory. And this is for people who um, receive obviously benefits from the government that they're entitled to receive and this cashless debit card would restrict and limit the, the types of things they can buy and also where they can actually buy them from because not every business will actually be set up to receive a cashless debit card through this system. So there are many, many issues with this system and the government, the federal government, um, you know, uh, commissioned a report through a university in Adelaide to review this uh, particular program. And the federal government has been very reticent to actually provide the res results of this um, review. And we have actually seen a government backbencher uh, speak out and say that she had actually um, seen this and that she knew that the um, the findings show that this program doesn't work and, in fact, that it creates great harm. And so she herself, um, at least verbally, has dissented against this, which is quite rare in current times. So where are we at with this, Ben? Because I'm aware that um, it, it did enter the parliament. There is legislation for it and um, it has actually passed the lower house. Yeah, that's right. Um, so the cashless debit card is a, you know, it's a one another one of what the academics call welfare conditionality, right? So it's another example of the government's obsession with putting conditions on welfare uh, and of punching down on people who are unlucky enough to be recipients of a government benefit. Uh, in this case, it will quarantine a certain percentage of your income. I think it is 80%. And you'll only be allowed to spend that money on certain things. Uh, so, you know, food and groceries, for example. Uh, but you won't be able to get it cash with that money. You won't be able to use it to, uh, you know, for example, um, go to the op shop or um, spend it on um, other essentials that might Perhaps go to a be, farmer's um, market. That's right. Go to a farmer's market. Um, of course, the government thinks that it's going to stop you from spending money on drugs and alcohol. Um, and there's um, limited evidence that maybe that's the case, but, uh, you know, it has to be said that actually there's very little evidence in favour of these um, of these cashless uh, debit cards working to, to affect um, substance abuse in the trials that have already been done on them. Um, in fact, you have to say there's not much evidence for this working at all, but the government's pressing ahead anyway. Um it has passed the lower house, including that Tasmanian Liberal MP who spoke against it. She actually voted for it anyway. Um, and so now it's up to the Senate. So once again, it's another major piece of legislation that will likely be decided by the Senate crossbenchers, people like One Nation and the Centre Alliance in South Australia.
Well, it is a bit concerning given the Centre Alliance's recent track record in supporting the government on highly contentious bills, given that they did support the government with their higher education changes. Now we will see very expensive humanities degrees and a reduced funding for um, particular courses like the sciences and environment. So what are your thoughts on the current status in terms of um, where people like Jackie Lambie and Centre Alliance are sitting? Yeah, very good question. Um, I think uh, Jackie Lambie tends to make up her mind bill by bill, um, and it's pretty hard to predict what Lambie will do. Um, you know, on the one hand, she's um, she's definitely a passionate campaigner for um, for people getting help with drugs. Um, on the other hand, um, she's she's taken a fairly hard line on welfare in the past, um, and the Centre Alliance have shown themselves to be amenable to bribes. Uh, so uh, they tend to be out for whatever they can get for South Australian voters. And in the case of the higher education funding legislation that they passed, um, what they got there was some guarantees around South Australian university funding. Um, so I think the government will get this through, actually, um, because, uh, you know, they've shown themselves to be pretty good at negotiating with the current crossbench, which anyway sort of leans fairly centre-right in its political colours in the, anyway. Mm, indeed. Um, it's certainly something that is concerning and um, distressing for many people who do receive government benefits because uh, it does seem to be one of those situations where it's the thin end of the wedge and things keep on um, expanding and expanding until potentially it might be universal and um, everyone will be potentially on this type of thing. So, um, you know, you wouldn't put it past the coalition government given what they've been doing recently. But it is something which I know um, the people, advocates in the welfare sector are very concerned about. So um, it's something that we should certainly take seriously in terms of its potential repercussions in the future. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the stigma that's attached to these cards is manifest. I think there's no doubt about that. Um, and also there's the sort of human rights aspect. You know, if, the, if you qualify for a benefit from the government, then I believe you should qualify for that in cash. You should be able to spend it how you want. We should give people the agency to take control of their own lives, to insist on that, you know, you're only allowed to spend certain types of things, I think, is really dehumanising and stigmatising and it should be opposed. Mm. And also, just from a very practical point of view, um, buying fruit and vegetables from the Queen Victoria market, for example, is quite literally the cheapest way that many people could buy their um, groceries, their fresh fruit and vegetables. So, you know, on a very basic level, you're actually um, preventing people from making free choices, which uh, is really the antithesis of what a coalition Liberal government is supposed to stand for. Well, it's worse than that because some people have to pay their rent in cash, right? Mm. So um, these cards can't cover certain types of essential expenses uh, and the government still hasn't found a way around that yet. Mm. Um, now, some people do pay cash for their housing and that is still uh, a legal way for you to pay for your rent in this country, you know? So I think there's a whole bunch of problems here that the government's refusing to admit. Yeah, and also um, looking at the most obvious uh, issue with it as well, which is the fact that it's being targeted towards the Northern Territory um, and the race part of this, the race component of this. And it's certainly not a new thing for um, all governments, but particularly the coalition government, to um, put restrictions on Australia's first peoples and to, you know, treat them like second-class citizens. Yeah, 
uh, there's uh, very much uh, reminiscent of the robo debt fiasco that you and I have talked about many times on the show. And also, um, let's just have a quick update on that because I do believe that um, they made their ruling and you know the payouts um, are happening. What, like, how? What are the repercussions in this government when we think about some of these major controversies that we've spoken about for quite literally years, um, like robo debt? even in very, very recent times, the last few weeks, talking about things like the Four Corners episode where we saw allegations against Alan Tudge and also Christian Porter, the sports rorts affair where we saw Bridget McKenzie being um, a key person and even Scott Morrison in that with the Prime Minister's office involved. Um, There are so many examples where there looks like Things have happened that were not above board, um, and there have been no consequences. Yeah, pretty much. Um, Stuart Robert is still in charge of welfare in this country, which is, uh, you know, uh, an absolutely uh, amazing turn of events. Really, that he's in the cabinet at all, frankly. Mm, um, and in charge, well, technically in charge of aged care. He is technically in charge of aged care, which is horrifying. Um, you know, remember, this is a guy who was sacked by Malcolm Turnbull from his cabinet uh, for taking improper gifts uh, in, ter- in return for lobbying the Chinese government. Um, maybe they should get him back to lobby the Chinese government. The Morrison government's had singular uh, lack of success when it comes to communicating with the Chinese government. But, um, you know, yeah, you're right to point out that there's no consequences for politicians who do the wrong thing, who break the rules, who preside over policy fiascos like RoboDebt. I mean, um, you know, the person who actually first greenlit RoboDebt was actually Scott Morrison. He was actually the, mm. the social services minister when it was first dreamed up. It was then given to Alan Tudge and Christian Porter. Neither of them have faced any consequences for RoboDebt either. So, uh, you know, uh, I, I think there's a, a massive problem of accountability when it comes to uh, you know, the Morrison government. And that's before we get into all of the uh, major corruption scandals that continue to dog this administration. Exactly. Um, One of the developments last night was that uh, a government-led committee, parliamentary committee, called on Sport Australia to clarify whether the grants that were made during that um, election, the last election, federal election, um, those sports grants, whether those were made legally and whether they actually qualify um, now. They want clarification on that. Um, And also to clarify the authority duty and roles of the Minister for Sport. Um, It's kind of curious to hear that given there's been a lot um, of controversy around that program and also um, around the the inquiry into it with um, the the actual people leading the inquiry suggesting that the government itself was obstructing their investigation. So um, that particular inquiry and um, the issues around it are still ongoing. Yeah, absolutely. There's been really, we still haven't got to the bottom of what happened with the sports rights affair, and there's certainly been no accountability there. Yes, Bridget McKenzie has resigned, uh, but it's not as though uh, the, the, the full details of what happened there have come out. Look, I think this was illegal. I think this was an outrageous abuse of public uh, public spending. Um, and, and I actually think if we had a proper corruption agency in this country, they would be investigating this. Um, but, of course, we don't at a federal level have a proper corruption agency. And, uh, indeed, the Morrison government has recently voted against uh, a cross-bench uh, independent bill uh, to set one up.
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, there are a couple of other very interesting issues that perhaps haven't really made headlines, one of which um, is national funding of medical research. And uh, we did see the latest um, grants be announced through the National Health and Medical Research Council. And um, in the conversation, that they have actually examined the success rate of um, people who have applied for these grants and saw that over the last 10 years, there has been near stagnant investment um, leading to a decline in funding in real terms and in 2019 the average success rate across the main NHMRC ideas and investigator grant schemes was just 11.9% which is pretty shocking when you think about it and especially because medical research in the scientific community and in the government realm um, tends to get more of the pie. So it's very surprising to hear that even in that um, category, they're not doing particularly well and haven't been doing so for a very long time. That's right, Amy. So seven out of eight medical research grants are not successful in this country. And that's a pretty scary statistic if you're a medical researcher. And that's a reason why prominent medical researchers are leaving research. Um, just, to, just a month or so ago, we saw Darren Saunders, uh, a very well-known cancer researcher in New South Wales, announced that he's quitting. He's just leaving research. Now, he's a guy who's literally working on cures for cancer. Why is he leaving research? Because he can't get any funding anymore. It's too difficult. Um, he didn't get any of his grants uh, this year, so he's got no money to do research. Um, so, you know, he, he's decided that he, there's other ways he can help the community. There's other ways he can um, try and, and serve and, um, you know, improve Australia's health. That's a, that's an indictment, isn't it, really, on the structure yeah. of our medical funding and on the way that we carry out research. I mean, here's a guy with, you know, uh, tremendous international success, all large numbers of peer-reviewed papers that he's published. You know, he's he's actually trying to, to make the world a better place. Um, you know, and, and this is reflected across the medical research sector and outside of medical research as well. Um, and, you know, it is a crisis. We're going to lose large numbers of these highly skilled researchers. They'll go overseas. They won't come back. Um, and that's going to directly affect Australia's security, our public health, our ability to create vaccines to future pandemics, our ability to treat, you know, devastating endemic diseases. There's just no good story here. It's all bad. No, indeed. Um, it was nice to see that uh, Premier Andrews of Victoria did announce some um, major funding, at least for some of these um, infection centres like the Doherty Institute and the Burnett Institute. So there will be some um, funding, but that's mainly um, not relating to particular work or research grants, although that will be a flow-on effect from that funding, which will establish linkages between all these key medical research centres in the Parkville area. And of course, that is um, greatly beneficial to Melbourne University, who's part of that um, that key precinct as well. So there is some movement, but it is um, pretty sad to see that it's very one-sided. Yeah, look, I mean, I think there's... Um there are little glimmers of hope and, you know, there's some long-term structural issues here, which is that we've trained a really large number of biomedical scientists over the last sort of 20 years. Not all of those researchers will be able to get grants. There's just too many of them in the system now. 
But, you know, you could sort of turn that on its head and look at the flip side, which is what is the opportunity cost? We have spent tens, hundreds of millions of dollars training these highly skilled researchers who are, after all, trying to make the world a better place, trying to discover cures for deadly diseases, and now we're just basically throwing them on the scrap heap. I've got a friend who had a nature paper out last year. She's working in an op shop at the moment. You know, that's where we've got to with medical research in this country. Mm, that is an indictment. Um, not that op shops are bad, but yeah. No, she's, she's actually loving it. Yeah. <laughs> she's, you make um, she's enjoying people. the change of pace and, you know, the lack of pressure. Um, you know, um, the, the work that these researchers do is really hard. It's long mm-hmm. hours. It's dangerous in some cases, of course. Um, a lot of dangerous things can happen in labs. Um, so we shouldn't sort of um, glamorise uh, the the sector, you know, there's there's some industrial problems as well. A lot of bullying happens in these labs. Mm. And yet, and yet, you know, like we actually need these people. If we're going to create a vaccine for coronavirus, you know, these are the people we turn to. Yes, absolutely it is. Um, one other issue, well, a couple of others, but one in particular um, is that there is going to be a virtual climate summit, which is happening very, very soon on the 12th of December. And it's being hosted by a number of nations, co-hosted by the UK, France, Italy, Chile, and also um, the United Nations. And um, we have really seen increasing pressure on Scott Morrison around this summit. He said that he would attend um, to correct mistruths, quote unquote, about Australia's um, approach to climate change and our policies. And we have heard um, just overnight that, uh, interestingly enough, the um, that Australia has not yet been offered a speaking place in the final program. Um, George Brandis, who's Australia's High Commissioner in London, has flown back to Canberra to help prepare for the virtual summit. So this does seem like it's a kind of big deal. What on earth is um, Australia going to do in this situation that we now find ourselves in um, with increasing pressure, not just with this summit, but of course, now that we do see that Trump will be leaving the White House, um, whether he's dragged out or not. Uh, Joe Biden has really put climate change front and centre on his um, agenda, and it certainly is in the EU, for example. So what, uh, what what does this mean for Australia? Well, it means Australia is increasingly isolated on climate. Uh, you know, why would the rest of the world want to hear from Australia on climate policy? I mean, we are absolutely the worst of the worst, really. You know, we are the laggards of climate action. Uh, we have basically very little to show for 20 years of attempts to do something about carbon emissions in this country. Carbon emissions are still rising in this country. Uh, you know, so it's you know, there's no reason why anyone would want to listen to Australia except for a lesson in how not to do it. Uh, You compare that to some of our trading partners, the United Kingdom has recently increased its carbon emissions reductions targets, right? So they're going to go to 70% carbon reductions by 2030 under Boris Johnson. Uh, That's the kind of leadership that a conservative government who believed in climate change could achieve if they wanted to. But of course, the Morrison government doesn't want to do that. It doesn't want to do anything that would affect its uh, lucrative donations from the fossil fuel sector. Uh, And, you know, it doesn't want to take on the rusted on climate denialist base within the Liberal Party. 
Yes, and we did see a few people congratulate Scott Morrison when he just recently announced that Australia would not use its carryover credits from the Kyoto Protocol in order to meet the 2030 emissions target um, as part of the Paris Agreement. And, of course, many people said, well, I don't think you should congratulate Scott Morrison for deciding not to cheat. That's right. Congratulations. We're not going to engage in emissions fraud. <laughs> Thanks very much. <laughs> That's great. Well done, Scott Morrison. Uh, yeah, I mean, carryover targets are nothing but accounting fraud. They're, they're basically double counting. Um, the reduction window is between 2020 and 2030. Uh, reductions that happened in the past have no impact, you know, and so uh, this was always a, a fudge and, yeah, now we should not be congratulating the Morrison government on anything to do with climate change. Uh, these guys are worsening the climate that's destroying the future of our children and grandchildren. We should be angry. We should be out on the streets protesting like the Extinction Rebellion people did last year. You know, we can laugh and we can joke, but the future of the planet's at stake here and the Morrison government is actively taking a hand in trying to destroy it. Exactly. Um, just to uh, finish out on a not high note um, is that we did hear, you know, <laughs> interestingly, um, that Matthias Cormann's been put forward for the um, head of the OECD job, um, which is interesting given that Australia is so uh, behind on climate change as one, just, just one example. Um, but, of course, the OECD does focus on many indicators in um, that particular uh, group. But a lot of people have thought that he had a decent shot at it, and that's why Australia has been funding a $4,000 an hour government plane for Matthias Cormann to use. And we have seen the ongoing um, flow-on effects of this because, of course, so many Australians are still stranded overseas and we're trying to get them back to Australia, um, some politicians have said, before Christmas, but we'll certainly see if that um, happens. It obviously won't be everyone. But there are, you know, over 30,000 people waiting to come back um, and obviously hotel quarantine restarting officially tomorrow in Victoria. So, you know, where do we stand now in terms of, um, you know, the rhetoric and also just this um, this kind of double standard situation because we did see Bronwyn Bishop with a helicopter quite a long time ago and everyone absolutely went into a tiz over that and that was a one-off but now we're seeing um, you know government sponsored planes um, for our former finance minister and uh, yeah I think it certainly does not pass the pub test. No, no, it's a rather different treatment of this particular job seeker to the way that we're treating uh, other people who have been given mutual obligations in our welfare system. Uh, quite a lot of assistance has been given to Matthias Corman in his attempt to be the Secretary-General of the OECD think tank. Uh, currently, I believe he's in Santiago, Chile, where he's been flown there on the Australian government plane. Uh, this is a, obviously just a giant waste of public funding. Um, it's taxpayers' money and all the rest of that. Um, but, you know, the, the bigger question here is what is the Morrison government doing in foreign policy? You know, this might be the very first time the Morrison government has believed in a multilateral organisation in its <laughs> history. Uh, uh, you know, and if you consider what's going on in our relationship with China, you know, a declining a relationship, to say the least, uh, a worsening trade war, you know, you would think that... Um, 
that the energies of the Morrison government will be directed towards repairing our relationship with our biggest trading partner, rather than flying a former finance minister around the world so he can uh, audition for a lucrative post-politics job. Yeah, it's pretty gross, actually. Yeah, it certainly is. And um, yeah, as you say, declining really doesn't quite cut it anymore. It did probably two months ago, um, but things certainly are escalating very quickly. Um, Yeah, it was very, I think, quite amusing to hear um, that the state Chinese media um, picked a really funny name um, for Scott Morrison, which is Lao Yu Chow, um, which was really essentially someone who's been quite lazy and claiming credit for all the work when actually (laughs) doing nothing. I thought it was great. Yeah, it's like a little piece of doughy bread. Yeah, (laughs) it's like fried bread. Very good. Yeah. Um, Yeah, I mean, amongst amongst other things, China's comprehensively winning the meme war as well. (laughs) (laughs) It was funny just watching all the Australians go pretty accurate, like you guys are paying attention. So, yeah, um, we'll have to watch this space, of course. But my next interview um, coming up is with Jeff Raby, who is Australia's was Australia's ambassador to China for quite a while from 2007. So we will be covering a number of these issues, including um, this uh, highly concerning relationship and also um yeah obviously there's a bit of a trade war going on um whether it's official or unofficial yeah good one amy i'm looking forward to listening to that one Thanks so much, Ben, for joining me and covering a very, very wide range of topics. Um, As you can tell, there's always something going on, but uh, there is a lot happening this week. What do you think is um, the thing we should be looking out for in particular with this last sitting week? Oh, I'm pretty interested in hearing what are the details of this industrial relations legislation from Christian Porter. You know, I think it really is work choices 2.0. Um, and I think um, under the cover of the end of the, the parliamentary year and the, the run into Christmas, I think the coalition's trying to introduce all sorts of nasty deregulations to our workplaces. Okay, we will, we will keep an eye on that. And thanks so much, Ben. Hope you have a great week. Thanks, Amy. Cheers, mate. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. And you are tuned in to Uncommon Sense on 3 Triple R FM with me, Amy Mullins, and I'm absolutely delighted to have with me on the show today, Jeff Raby AO. He is an independent company director and author of a new book, China's Grand Strategy and Australia's Future in the New Global Order. It's out through Melbourne University Publishing and Jeff has um, had a very important career overseas representing Australia in many forums and in many roles. Most pertinent to our conversation here is that Jeff was Australia's ambassador to China from 2007 to 2011. He was also ambassador to APEC between 2003 and 2005. He was ambassador to the World Trade Organization between 1998 and 2001. And he also has a number of roles relating to the arts and culture, being the chairman of VisAsia at the Art Gallery of New South Wales and chairman of the Australia China Institute of Arts and Culture at the University of Western Australia. So um, I'm really delighted to welcome you 
you, Jeff, and it's wonderful to have someone with such a wide-ranging experience and obviously a great level of expertise. Thanks, Amy. I'm delighted to be here and congratulations on your show. It's a big public contribution to spend uh, substantial amounts of time uh, discussing issues in depth like you do. Well, thank you. I certainly do enjoy it and it's a real delight to speak to minds like yours and to read books like these. And I think um, I was really excited when I saw this book coming out because it um, is obviously drawing on such really interesting experiences given that you lived in China for such a long time as well during your roles over there representing Australia. And given that, I'd love to first up delve into that element of your experience before we get into some of the hard-headed foreign policy parts of this discussion. I thought it might be interesting to set the scene and get a better understanding of how you experienced China when you were living in China and obviously as an ambassador, Australian ambassador to China. How did you experience that country? And I think this book is really interesting because you draw out your travels from many areas across China. And we often forget that China is a massive, massive country. And so obviously it would be hard to distill it into to one kind of answer, but I did want to get a sense of the flavour of your experience and particularly, I guess, the culture of the Chinese people. Well, thanks uh, very much, Amy. Uh, but my experience is, is clearly very unique. I've been very lucky. I've had a very lucky and fortunate career. But by chance, and I'm not a um, sinologist, I don't make a claim to be a sinologist, I've got a PhD in economics, and um, I was teaching economics at the Trobe University uh, a very long time ago in the early 80s, and an opportunity came to work uh, in Canberra, and I found myself quite unexpectedly in the Office of National Assessments initially uh, as uh, the China economic analyst just at the time, Bob Hawke had come to power and recognised that the Chinese economic reforms, which had just been announced in the years before, um, would change China profoundly and would have incredible implications for Australia. And that was the world I landed in in the early 80s and started being engaged in China. And there was a period where, when I was probably the only professional economist in the country, actually on a daily basis, studying and analysing the Chinese economy and economic reform. And then luckily, I found myself transferred to foreign affairs and posted when Ross Garno was sent by Hawke to be the ambassador in 1985. And from then on, I basically have been for the past 35 years uh, thinking about analysing uh, China, briefing ministers, briefing senior business people, and trying to understand this extraordinary change and, and ultimately how it impacts on Australia. One of the things from those days, because China was unbelievably poor then, and, and many people... Uh, also, uh, outside of China, were very suspicious of it coming out of the Cultural Revolution, a communist country, the Cold War was still raging. And there was a real sense of disbelief that um, China was ever really going to change. But a few people like Prime Minister Hawke, um, Ross Garno, as you know, a very famous economist as well, myself, uh, we, we felt that China had no option. It wasn't about ideology, it wasn't an embrace of the free market on the basis of philosophy. It was really about um, China was so poor, it had to do something. And Chinese people are so proud. Um, and China has such a great tradition as a major uh, power historically, that um, it was just seemed inevitable that 
what has actually happened happened. And the only other point I'd make on this really in terms of historical reflection is that we were often dismissed as being wildly optimistic about China. Naive was the main charge made against people like myself at the time. And I can assure you that China has far, far exceeded our wildest optimism of those days uh, in the 80s. So I had a good fortune to spend five years in China, uh, an unusually long posting in those days, and it included uh, Tiananmen Square. And so I was there on the streets and, and, and witnessed all of that firsthand. And uh, then I um, went away from China for a while and really for the next decade or so found myself immersed in international trade, multilateral trade and multilateral trade negotiations. And luckily found my way back as a deputy secretary to China when I was appointed as ambassador in uh, 2007. And that sort of brings us up to where we are with the book, I guess. Um, but when I went to China, I had a couple of objectives. Um, one was not to waste a minute because I felt that in the five years I'd been in China, not that I wasted time, I just realized how quickly, because everything's happening, it's so dynamic, um, that you just couldn't waste a minute and sit around um, uh, with expats. And that leads to the second thing, that I decided that I would spend as much time as I possibly could with um, local Chinese. Uh, but thirdly, which is something that's very difficult back in the 80s, I, I was determined to travel to every single province in China officially, and I'm the only ambassador to have done so, and still am the only ambassador to have done so. And um, that gave me a very, very interesting perspective on, on China. And I'm glad you mentioned the travel writing in the book, Amy, because um, that's drawn from those trips. Some were official, some were, were private. Um, but I think it helps to provide a sort of texture to the narrative and, and the bigger, broader political story. Finally, I, I really have had a third stint because when I finished as ambassador at the end of 2011, uh, I stayed in um, China, set up a business. I've operated as a business person since then. It's been you know, quite successful, I'm pleased to say. And um, uh, I've now lived in China for 13 years consecutively. And had it not been for COVID-19, I would be still in China. But had it not been for COVID-19, I wouldn't have written a book. So there you are. <laughs> it is very interesting and also fascinating that you have spent such a, a long stint over there um, in so many different roles. One of the things I would love to ask about in your role as ambassador to China is in a top-level sense, what are some of the roles and responsibilities of an ambassador to China, particularly in the context of diplomacy, given that at the moment, as we stand in 2020, Australia's diplomatic relations with China are very much not the same as they have been in the past. And I, I kind of wanted to understand the role of the ambassador and the, the key importance of diplomacy, particularly with the relationship between Australia and China? Ambassador's role is a, is a curious one because people think, oh, you're just overseas representing your country, which of course you are, and it's, it's your primary responsibility. But you really sit between both your host government and your home government. It's important that the host government understands your country's positions why you're doing what you're doing. Um, you also want to seek advantage for your country and identify opportunity, uh, be that to influence the thinking and policies of your host country in 
directions that are favourable to your home country. And of course, obviously, in a, with a country like China, and particularly the years I was there, one was very much focusing on uh, economic opportunity, uh, both for Australians going to China, but also uh, trying to bring Chinese capital uh, to Australia and, and, and Chinese customers to Australia's markets. So that's, you know, I guess, first and foremost. But there's another dimension to it. To do all of that well, you also have to make sure that your own country, uh, your home, uh, we talk about uh, uh, your capital, uh, mine was Canberra, that your capital actually understands the contemporary realities and complexities of the place that you're in. And so the information flow back from the embassy in Beijing to, to head office is extremely important. And it's one of the great challenges uh, of being um, an ambassador and a diplomat um, is, is, is to ensure that your, your capital, your home country, both politically but also the business community and the wider community, are really across the contemporary reality of where you are. And I think this is particularly challenging in China and has been over the last 30 decades simply because the pace of change is so great and because China is so different. I mean, they have different uh, values about things like human rights that are um, us. Uh, their, their form and system of political and social organisation. And here you note, I, I don't talk about things like democracy. I think democracy is a very um, value-laden concept and means different things to just about anyone, everyone who uses the, the term. But but the way you organise your politics and your society, uh, there are many, many different models of it. And China's is probably more different than most countries. And it's important to stop or encourage people, help people not to, to think about uh, other countries through ideological blinkers or stereotypes. And unfortunately, much of the media because of the pressure to write and to get stories out, uh, tends to package information about another country in, in, in more simple um, stereotypical or ideological frame framing. So that's a, that's a, a real challenge. I, I, I never spent a lot of time with my colleague, the US ambassador, simply because they're so busy and everyone else wants to. But we had a good relationship and we'd have lunch occasionally. And uh, that was what we talked between ourselves most about was managing our capitals uh, and, and, and the challenges of that. And that's very important for your country that there are no misunderstandings uh, and the communication is clear uh, and well-formed and well-based. And one of the things I did as ambassador was when I got there in 07, I realised that China was changing in ways that we'd not really understood. Uh, up until then, most people focused their attention on the eastern seaboard of China um, business and, 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 and government. The big cities, you know, Beijing, Shanghai, uh, Guangzhou, Shenzhen, all of that, everyone knows about that. But there was a vast hinterland of China that was rapidly being brought into China's uh, incredibly fast economic growth and development that we'd hardly touched. And when I first went there, a province like Shandong, which most people in Australia then would never have heard of, uh, if it was a standalone country, would have been Australia's fifth largest trading partner in the world. And the same goes for Guangdong, although most people have heard of Guangdong, that would have been seventh largest. And it's funny because, and this helps to sort of maybe illustrate the point about keeping your home country, your capital informed about the contemporary reality. 
I remember once going off to Wuhan. We know that from the virus now. But uh, that's a population of 8 million. This would have been 2007. And the deputy secretary who I answered to in Canberra sent me a very terse message saying, what are you going to all these obscure places for? What's the interest? And I said, well, it's a population of 8 million people. It's got the fourth largest steel mill in China, and they're just about to invest hundreds of millions of dollars in uh, the iron ore sector in Western Australia. But most people then had never heard of Wuhan. So that is the challenge. And and, and that's I found really exciting. I found intellectually very stimulating. And that's one reason why I went to every single province in China, all 31 of them um, professionally. Well, that's um, really interesting you mentioned Wuhan because it's also uh, now, in an interior sense, one of the central transport hubs of China as well. So given that the virus originated there, as far as we know, that obviously led to the spread of it as well, um, being such a really central city in the whole of um, China. Yeah, well, Wuhan, and it just came to my head then, Amy, as an example. But interestingly enough, when I first went to China, on my first trip was actually 1985. My posting began in 86, but I went to do a familiarization. And I don't know why I had this in me, but at the time I said, look, uh, fine, Beijing, Shanghai, Shenzhen. I had to go to Shenzhen because Prime Minister Hawke wanted an assessment of the special economic zone that had been announced a couple of years earlier. But I said, I really want to go to somewhere in the interior. And the embassy said, well, that's odd and it's transport's difficult and it's we got no one there, and so you know they did everything they could to discourage me. Mm. In the end, we agreed that I'd go to Wuhan, <laughs> and um, there were hardly any flights, and so I went by train, which was great, but it was like a twenty-six hour uh, train trip in a, in a in a in a local train. Whereas today, on the high-speed train, I think it's about uh, three and a half hours from Beijing to Wuhan. But it really was uh, a. a you know, so far away from anything. It was an incredibly filthy industrial city covered in smog and uh, coal ash and so on. Um, but it's on the Yangtze. And Wuhan is very interesting for another reason. Uh, the first bridge in all of China's history across the Yangtze River was built in Wuhan. And I used to use it as a little bit of a trivial pursuit type of uh, question to focus people on just how extraordinarily rapid China's economic growth and development is. My question is this. Uh, when was the first bridge across the Yangtze in all of China's 3,000 years of history built? Where was it built and by whom? Well, the second question I've answered already, it was built in Wuhan, but it was built in 1956, as recently as that, the first in 3,000 years, and it was built by the Soviet Union. <laughs> oh, how interesting. Yeah. No, but it also just focuses in in a very arresting way people's attention on just how rapid everything has changed in China. Absolutely. Well, even now, even today, looking at the rural areas of China, there are so many that are not rural anymore. They've been rapidly developed into, you know, places with multiple apartment blocks and things that were just standalone homes and no longer that. So, you know, there's certainly been a huge uplift in terms of income, which you highlight in this book, particularly, um, you know, showing this huge growth of the middle class in China. 
but also a growth at the top end in terms of those who um, are, are particularly well off and wealthy in the business realm. No, well, absolutely. Um, um, I, I don't follow this stuff anymore, Amy, but, you know, a, a big number of the world's billionaires are, are in China. But I think it's really the middle class story. You, you know, you can do the sums and, 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 and probably adjust the numbers, but, but the, the broad picture is this, that in fifteen the past 15 years, China has created a middle class of around 300 million people. That is a population as big as the United States. And as I say in the, the book, I remember the phrase is something like, and, and this middle class has all the attributes of the global middle class. You know, they spend a lot on high quality housing. Uh, children's education is absolutely paramount. Uh, and especially if you can get your kids educated in you know, top US universities, they all have dogs and, and, and walk expensive dogs every morning and that sort of thing. I, and, and I make those comments so that we realize that this is the reality of China, and it's a middle class that travels globally. It, it knows what the rest of the world looks like. Much of it is studied outside of China. And that's happened in 15 years. But still, China is a one-party authoritarian system ruled by a communist party. And these are the great, if you like, contradictions that are so challenging for analysts and so so challenging to stereotypes and, and ideologically-based assumptions and that's why you really one really needs to be in China and to see it and to feel the change on a daily basis. That's so true. And um, I'll just quote that section for you. One of the particular statistics that we're um, broadly referencing is that China has grown rapidly to create the biggest middle class society in the shortest time in world history. And as you say, it has all the attributes of the global middle class. And obviously, it's also reflected in those Chinese nationals who may decide to actually move to another country and become a citizen there instead and obviously revoke their own citizenship, but they, you know, become part of another country and bring cultural features to these countries, their wonderful ways of interacting. And and I think, you know, hopefully Australia, for example, might start to have a deeper and better appreciation of Chinese Australians and um, and the kind of wonderful things that they bring to our nation. Absolutely, absolutely. It's something like 5% of Australia's population are from uh, ethnic Chinese background. Not all that's mainland, but, but pretty much it is. And, and look, ethnic Chinese have been part of Australia since the gold rushes in the 1840s. China is an integral part of who we are as Australians. And, you know, a very, very good book came out this year. It's called The Forgotten People, the, the soldiers, the Chinese soldiers who fought in the First World War uh, alongside... Um, Caucasian Australian soldiers, their, their, their history has been obscure until really this book came out this year. It just I make that point just to underscore the extent to which ethnic Chinese and China culturally has been so much part of Australia for so long. And that is the basis of a very strong multicultural society, and, and we need to continually understand that and recognise it. What is important also when we deal with China, the People's Republic of China, is that we don't view the relationship with China purely in transactional terms. Sure, the, the, the trade and the investment and the business is extremely important for Australia's well-being and our current standard of living. But there's much more to our relationship with China than just the trade. And a lot of it's got to do with the fact that 
uh, 5% of our population are ethnically Chinese and have all those connections back into mainland uh, China. And that um, you know, Chinese uh, art, culture, cuisine have uh, vastly enriched Australia. And equally, although we're much smaller, we have worked hard over the last 40 years for uh, China and people in China to recognise that Australia has an authentic cultural voice. And so I said this at the press club two weeks ago when I was speaking on the book and asked, you know, really what can be done now in the current circumstances to try and lift the relationship out of the current hole that it's in. And I think a very big thing that we can do is do more uh, cultural activity. And in my own case, uh, I became a very substantial collector of Chinese contemporary art because uh, my language skills are pretty bad, so I can't really immerse myself in Chinese literature. Um, but visual art, I can. And I think it is an amazing story of a society that's gone through extraordinary change in 35 years, but also that many, and this is very significant and not really understood in Australia, many top Chinese contemporary artists actually came to Australia and built their careers here. Many are still living here, but a lot went back in the early years of last decade and, and became global figures as a result of doing that. Um, so there's a very strong cultural uh, dynamic around contemporary art. It's not only art, contemporary art, but it is one area that I've focused on. And it just underscores, again, how this relationship between Australia and China is much broader and, and much deeper than the commercial relationship, no matter how important the commercial relationship may be. Mm. And um, it's interesting that you, you're now mentioning that kind of economic point, and that's something that I feel it was part of our conversation um, previous to the, the current situation we're in. We often heard that, oh, well, you know, um, Australia's relationship with China is economic and we get great mutual benefits from this relationship. But, of course, Australia's relationship with America is about security and, you know, our long-held alliance, the ANZUS Treaty. And so, you know, these things were kind of held together as being separate features. And, and then, of course, in more recent times, we've heard uh, government figures say things like, well, of course, we have very, very different values. And we've seen, I guess, a more, even more divergent um, separation. And we're even now moving into tensions on, on economics, um, substantial tensions that we hadn't seen to this extent for a very long time. So I, I want to ask about the way that Australia has characterised its relationship with China, particularly looking at the point from where you've been involved and how it's evolved, because that is a feature of this book, is how has Australia been holding up our relationship with China and how have we managed this growing supposed competition between the United States and China in terms of China being such an emerging economic powerhouse but also, as you show in this book, having vast amounts of uh, money spent on defence spending, which is particularly spent on internal disputes and security. But um, I did want to, to, I guess, get your take on how this characterisation has evolved and whether it's been a realistic reflection of our actual relationship. Yes, well, uh, former Prime Minister Tony Abbott once described the relationship with uh, China, Australia's relationship with China, as being one based on greed and fear. And 
sadly, that's actually, not, to my mind, not a bad summary of the state that we've reached. Certainly now the discussion about the relationship has been reduced to a binary choice, uh, uh, a choice between sycophancy or hostility. And I think that's immensely unhelpful um, for Australia and, and China, for, for both sides, and, and in terms of particularly Australia's, Australia's interest. Um, I, 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 an important source of stimulus for this book was a book that uh, Professor Hugh White wrote and published in 2012 called The China Choice. And most people never read the book, and they just assumed that the China Choice was Australia's China Choice, um, you know, that we had to choose between uh, our economic interests or our security. And for a long time, Australian governments have said, well, that's a false dichotomy. We don't have to choose between the two. Uh, Hugh White was not talking about Australia's choice. Hugh White was talking about the United States' choice. And he said, a time will come when the United States, challenged by an ascendant China, the United States as the dominant power will have to make a choice, as all dominant powers do when challenged by an ascendant power, to either provide strategic space for the ascendant power and let its ascendancy um, happen peacefully, uh, or resist, as most dominant powers do, um, with the very real prospect that it could all end in war, uh, as was the case, of course, between Athens and, 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 and Sparta in the Peloponnesian War. 3,000 years ago. And he then went on to say, if the US chooses to resist China's ascendancy, then that will have extremely serious consequences for Australia. And Australia was singularly unprepared for that eventuality. Well, the reality is, certainly from at least 2016, although the, the pressure was building before then, even as long ago as... Uh, Obama's pivot, which also was announced in Australia uh, in 2012, the US moved quite quickly and by 2016 had taken the view that China was a strategic competitor, had to be resisted and contained. And that was, a, was, was their China choice, just as Hugh White predicted it would happen. And what we see today and the dire situation our relationship is in with China these are the consequences that Hugh forewarned us about and almost said would be inevitable because of the way we approached uh, our foreign policy. And what we have done, and again, Hugh thought this was the most likely outcome, we have joined with the United States in uh, viewing China as a strategic competitor. Now, the thing here is that China is not a strategic competitor to Australia. We have no historical conflicts, no ongoing territorial issues such as Japan and India do at present and have had for a long time. And we're not a dominant power that's being challenged by an ascendant power. We have massive commercial benefits out of our relationship with China. Uh, and I've mentioned the cultural and other non-transactional dimensions of the relationship, which are extremely important for Australia. And yet, um, because of things like you say, uh, values, and I think more sociological aspects, including the very close uh, relationship between our military, strategic and defence establishment and the US equivalents, we have um, joined 
ourselves to the hip with the United States uh, in its uh, uh, policies of resisting China's rise uh, and containing China. And therein, are the, that's, that's basically what the book is really all about, trying to understand how that happened and then what do we do about it. This is the show Uncommon Sense and I'm Amy Mullins and I'm about to play for you the second part of my interview with Jeff Raby, former Australian ambassador to China, and we're um, about to get into the discussion around um, the very fraught and I guess you could say in crisis, really, relationship between Australia and China, which really has descended um, since even a couple of weeks ago when this conversation happened, um, with uh, much happening after that. But we do touch on all of the reasons why, um, which are now very pertinent to what's been happening. So I hope you enjoy the second part of the interview. I think a lot of people, when we talk about these decisions and Australia's position on China and siding with the US, we don't really think about what the real outcomes of that are and the flow-on decision-making that occurs when we take such strategic sides and positions. And those are some of the things that you do outline in this book is um, Australia's position on China looking at some of the kind of key strategic initiatives that China has taken, including the Belt and Road Initiative, um, including Huawei's involvement in 5G networks. These are some of the initiatives that China has been spearheading that, you know, is very heavily tied to China's strategic interests and also to its identity, its plan to have relations with a broad range of nations that is cooperative and, and beneficial. And Australia, it seems, has decided to be actively resistant to some of these initiatives, but also, as you highlight in this book, to say that in many cases, Australia has had the loudest critical voice against some of these initiatives and has sometimes decided to be the first critical voice, including, of course, in recent times, COVID-19 and that push to have a, an inquiry into China and its handling of it. So I want to ask about these key points of tension and the areas where Australia has decided to take such a strident and early critical position on them. Why might we be doing that? Because on the face of it, it doesn't really seem like it's aligned with our national interests. I, I, I couldn't agree more uh, with, with your assessment of that. And it's really, it, it, it's something of a puzzle, but I think it's very much a sense that we have needed to pay our dues to the US uh, and the US alliance. There's another element here, I think, which is important, and that stridency, if you like, in our position, and I do use that word on a, a number of occasions uh, to characterise how we've behaved, uh, relates also very much to the ascendancy of Trump, to the US presidency, and Trump turning America inwards and retreating from its position of global leadership and particularly a global leadership based around values. Interestingly enough, I don't think Trump has ever criticised China on human rights grounds, for example, although we will see more of that under the Biden administration. Um, but I think that Australian strategic defence policy people, maybe even diplomats, felt you know we had a role to play, if you like, to fill a gap that was being vacated under the Trump administration um, because you characterise the... The, the things very well. Now, South China Sea, the US, for example, is not even a member of the law of the sea. 
And when we talk about the rule of law globally or the international rule of law, we have to understand and, and, and move away from slogans and shibboleths, very much favoured by some of our prime ministers, and, and, and look at the reality. There are multiple international rules of law. The law of sea is one, but the, the US is not part of UNCLOS, the UN agreement that establishes the law under which China uh, had a case taken against it by the Philippines in the um, in the Hague uh, Court of Justice. Of course, China never participated in the in, in the case, but for some unbeknown reason, other than, than basically filling a gap for the US, um, Australia came out with the most strident, hardline position on this, and and it just you know, how does this help us? What has it done? And and same with you mentioned Huawei exactly. We were the first by a couple of years to comprehensively ban Huawei. The UK, which has access to all the same intelligence assessments, information, and probably a lot more than Australia has, only this year, a couple of months ago, under enormous pressure from Secretary of State Pompeo, only this year comprehensively banned Huawei. Up until this year, for the last several years, um, they've only banned uh, uh, 30% of, of 5G networks from Huawei. And even so, they made the announcement, because Huawei is so integral to the UK's 5G, uh, it's not going to be phased out for another couple of years. So if it's such a sort of existential threat to security of the UK, they don't seem to be in any great rush to get rid of it. But again, we were the first and, and we made a big deal of it. And you also mentioned the Prime Minister's call for an inquiry into COVID-19 back in March. Completely unremarkable. Of course, we would all want an inquiry into the origins of COVID-19, but he made it in a very specific context when Trump was beating up massively on the Chinese, calling it the Wuhan virus, the China virus. He made his call after a very publicised telephone conversation with Trump the day before, and we did it without anyone on our team. We went alone. We didn't do the usual diplomacy, um, which would be to build a a coalition of like-minded people. And that could have been done quite quickly, given that it's such an unremarkable thing to be asking for. Um, And we didn't have to be so strident in our call or make it so specifically about uh, a criticism of of China and its behaviour. And then we had bizarre things like the foreign minister just ramping it up even further, saying we're going to have flying squads of uh, pandemic investigators akin to UN weapons inspectors. Well, she should have at least known that UN weapons inspectors only inspect weapons uh, with Security Council uh, authority, which obviously would not be forthcoming with China in the Security Council or Russia in the Security Council. So it's all sort of very, very strange and unnecessary, but it has brought upon us an enormous amount of grief. Now, with anti-foreign interference that came out in the Turnbull, that's another case in point. Perfectly good to have anti-foreign interference laws. They have to be, of course, against all countries who seek to interfere in Australia's domestic politics. And we see other countries from time to time interfering, including the United States, in Australia's domestic um, politics. We should have laws about this. But when the Prime Minister announced it, he spoke in Chinese, in poor Mandarin, and said that the Australian people had stood up, uh, the subtext being stood up against China, seeing he was speaking in Chinese. And he was paraphrasing Mao Zedong when Mao Zedong purportedly stood on the um, entrance to the uh, 
the Forbidden City in Beijing in 1st of October 1949 and announced that the Chinese people had stood up against a century, uh, a, hundred, a century of humiliation and, and colonial occupation. I mean, the two things aren't even on the same plane, what he was talking about, Australian Prime Minister. But more than that, those words for the Chinese are somewhat sacred. And, 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 and the whole century of humiliation, whilst the Communist Party uses it for propaganda purposes, is actually true. And as the old saying goes, just because you're paranoid doesn't mean you're not being followed. And this, this was really insulting and ordinary people in China, when I say ordinary people, the sort of people I've mixed with, uh, educated, internationally oriented Chinese, they're insulted by it and say, what is Australia doing? And, of course, for a Chinese person, when a prime minister or foreign minister speaks, we're accustomed to them shooting their mouths off from time to time. For the Chinese, this is like it really means something. It's speaking on behalf of every single Australian person. So it is complete mishandling of these things. Each one is perfectly defensible in terms of Australia's interest, in terms of uh, uh, protecting ourselves. You can argue the case for each one, um, rightly or wrongly, but you can argue the case. But the presentation of each one has been utterly confrontational and counterproductive. Oh, absolutely. Certainly the manner in which it's been done, as you've outlined, has been, to put it mildly, culturally insensitive. But one of the things that it seems that Australia has forgotten or is ignoring is something that you brought up earlier in our conversation, which is this idea that, you know, the Chinese people, as well as the Chinese government, but talking about these people that you, you know, yourself have just been referring to, have a deep sense of pride. And when these types of issues arise, it's not seen as a government to government tiff something that's, you know, meaningless or just people shooting names across the bow of a ship. It actually does mean something to people. Um, and the concept of, you know, to save face in China is another thing that is um, strong in in their culture. And so for Australia to be so ignorant of the um, cultural repercussions as well as the political repercussions, I guess, is what has been so striking in recent times. And why, I guess, some people like myself included, you know, have asked you this question about why Australia would do that, because it seems like they have um, really brought this all on themselves. And of course, China is not blameless in this situation. But I think the point of this book and what you highlight and you use great language around is that we must when we're talking about diplomacy, but also just talking about relations with other nations, look at issues through their eyes, through China's eyes. And that's one of the great things about this book is that you have really set out how China sees itself, the issues, internal issues that China has to deal with and the challenges that it has and how that means that its grand strategy is in fact limited and constrained and that the types of paranoia and fear and, as you say, greed that Australia has engaged in around China in more recent times is actually really quite misplaced and China is not seeking to overturn the world order. As you say in this book, China is not trying to turn every government communist or authoritarian. China is not seeking to rival America um, in, a, in a security defence sense. They have a huge inward-looking security and defence spend, which is really quite 
important. And also the other element of its defence, which you highlight in this book, is its focus on resources and, and shoring up its supply of essential resources, given it that it has actually outgrown that stage of self-sufficiency, which you outline. So I would love to ask about the way that you perceive China's grand strategy, which is um, part of the title of this book, and how we've got it so wrong, how we've actually misconstrued some of China's behaviours. So thinking about it through China's eyes, how has Australia, I guess, misconstrued and misunderstood some of these actions? Thanks, Amy. A big part of the book, um, the, the central argument, I guess, and it's the second section of the book, is, is called Prometheus Bound. And I've been turning these ideas over in my mind for a very long time. And I also realise that in some ways I'm fairly uniquely placed, having lived in China for such a long period of time, being a Western diplomat, uh, Western public official, trained in Western economics, um, and essentially a Western worldview, uh, how the world might look from Beijing. And it certainly looks very different than the world when viewed from Canberra and Washington. But how I started thinking about this, I mentioned Hugh in terms of the Australia-China-US triangle. And uh, uh, at the same time, about eight years ago, another very important book and its influence on me came out, which was uh, Henry Kissinger's very fine book on China. And I devoured it. But at the end, the last chapter was very strange, particularly for such a realist in terms of foreign policy. He just asserted that China was not an expansionary power. And I thought, well, that may or may not be true. I don't know. But you can't base a security policy on assumptions about a country's future behaviour. And I thought, there's something going on here. I'm just trying to think it through. And then there came to me the notion of intent and capacity. So we could speculate forever on China's intent. Does it want to be a global, regional hegemon? We don't know. Some might say China has been an expansionary power. If you look at the Qing dynasty, China gobbled up vast areas of Central Asia, and some of which are still in, inside the borders of the PRC, such as Xinjiang and Tibet and, and Inner Mongolia. At the same time, people would say, oh, no, but they, they, they were Manchus. Uh, they were essentially Mongolians uh, who, you know, when winter comes on um, and uh, it's a long winter and they run out of uh, uh, vodka and jokes sitting in the yurts, go around the world, you know, occupying territory, raping and pillaging. And so they're not harmed Chinese. That may be the case. But I think it doesn't matter what, what you assume about intent. You really have to understand capacity. And that's really, I think, the, the unique contribution of my book. Um, and I argue that China is a constrained superpower, Prometheus bound, because it's constrained by geography. It's got 14 countries on its border and 22,000 kilometres of land border to defend. And even though relations are very chummy between China and, the, and Russia now, there's a deep historical mistrust and both countries keep vast armies on their borders uh, because they never know when things might change and, and it's very wise to not trust each other. China's constrained by history because it's still an empire with unresolved territorial issues inside its border. Uh, we see today the terrible human rights abuses going on in Xinjiang, uh, Tibet, Taiwan, of course, and now, in my argument, my view, because of Beijing's ineptitude, Hong Kong has become another major uh, issue. And as you mentioned in your introduction to this section, Amy, uh, 
quite rightly, uh, China spends more on internal security than on external. So although China's expenditure on external defense has gone up massively, but then so is the size of the Chinese economy and, and defense spending as a share of GDP hasn't actually increased all that greatly, at a much greater clip has been the growth of expenditure on uh, internal security. And it now accounts for something like 18% more than what China spends on external security. And of course, that touches on another important vulnerability Beijing experiences or feels, and that is these places like uh, Xinjiang in particular, but also Tibet, um, to some extent Mongolia, this goes to the heart of peripheral security. And Beijing for thousands of years has always sought security from Central Asia. So the peripheral areas uh, raise massive security fears for Beijing, rightly or wrongly. Uh, you, you know, objectively, you might say, no, they're just imagining it. It doesn't matter. That's what they feel, and that's how they act. Um, but then the third one you touched on, and uh, I, I, I don't know why this hasn't really been understood much more in the literature and, and written and talked about. China, in terms of natural resources, I mean minerals and energy, basically, to, to, to power industry and the economy, China has been a very, very rich country. For, for thousands of years, China was self-sufficient and produced great civilizations, great economic development, and great art and culture. And it did it all with all the resources it had and needed inside its territory. Then uh, after 49 and uh, Mao was going off the rails and was promoting ra rapid population growth as a form of national security and defense, um, there's suddenly a lot of Chinese and that didn't sort of matter because they're all so poor. But then by the 1990s, fascinating, from the mid-1990s, China starts to get richer and starts to go through tipping points, one after the other. So in 96, China is still self-sufficient in crude oil. By the early years of 2000, it's beginning to import large amounts of crude oil. And by 2007 or 8. It's the global biggest importer of crude oil and still is today by a huge margin. We experienced a super resource cycle last decade when prices in particular of iron ore went through the roof. And I have a subsection on the resources chapter called the Iron Ore Wars. And, and China hardly imported any iron ore until the early 2000s. And then it rapidly became a major importer. And again, once again, the, the world's uh, greatest import. And you can go through all the basement metals other than rare earths, uh, which aren't a base metal, of course, but other than rare earths, China has become utterly dependent on world markets for every single thing it needs to power its economic engines. And all of those things until recently, and this is the genesis of the Belt and Road, not some grand strategy to create a Sino-centric order, but for security reasons, because all of this stuff that was coming into China and China depended on it and still depends on it went through the South China Sea. You've heard of the South China Sea, I think, and the Straits yes. of Malacca. So uh, for Beijing, these things are of massive strategic importance. And in, there, there was strategic planners last decade talking about the Straits of Malacca and the South China Sea as the boot on China's throat. Now, you compare this with the United States after the Civil War in the when it ascended to a global power. It had no uh, disputed territory. It had no hostile neighbours. Internally, it had no uh, unresolved territorial issues. 
and it had every single thing it needed inside its borders to support its economy other than people, and it sacked those people with education out of Europe in vast numbers. So the conditions of China's ascendancy could not be more different, could not be more different than those that the US faced. And so that's why I conclude that whatever China's intent, its capacity to become a a regional hegemon, forget about a global hegemon, is massively constrained. Prometheus is bound, and when we look at China, we, we need to understand it is not an existential threat to our security. And our responses to China's bad behavior, it's throwing its weight around the South China Sea, those things we don't like, need to be proportionate and calibrated against what the real threat is, not what the perceived threat is. I think that's a really wonderful point. And um, one other thing I did want to quickly touch on before we finish this conversation was looking at China's behaviour in a a global sense and its engagement in some of these key forums that you yourself have been involved in your own career is that you outline in this book the fact that they have engaged quite deeply with groups like the UN and that they you know are the leading spender in terms of peacekeeping in the UN that they themselves have set up multilateral groups that they have chosen to participate in rather than going unilateral or bilateral in many instances so that they have been demonstrating themselves a kind of willingness to be cooperative and to not I guess be strident or one-sided but one of the things that I really loved and I thought was a great point you drew out and that we perhaps forget is that quote in international relations the unpleasant reality is that great powers do what they wish and the rest do what they can and that really brought home to me something that was clear throughout this book was that and also nowadays um, in Australia's reactions to China is that there seems to be almost a double standard applied between the US and its actions um, and when it decides to ignore global rules-based orders and China when it decides to pursue its interest and ignore certain rules and that Australia seems to be in some regards punching above its weight and not realising that we're the second part, where the the rest do what they can um, and need to work around these great powers. So I did want to ask finally with that quote in mind and this kind of to me, a sense of a bit of a double standard that China has pointed out in some concrete examples is that how does Australia, being such a close ally of the United States and given Biden has now um, become president-elect of the United States, how does Australia see itself, I'm probably talking in an optimistic sense because I don't know if we'll come to this realisation in this government, but how should Australia or could Australia actually reset this souring diplomatic relationship. We don't have minister-to-minister contact in any meaningful sense at a trade level, apparently, as we have heard reported in the media. How does Australia grapple with this reality that great powers will do what they wish and we are actually needing to do what we can between two, two vast powers that we have inextricable links with and that we need to actually come to grips with and to reconcile our position? Well, that's really what the third part of the book's about, and I call that Australia's dystopian future. And I call it that because we no longer will live ever again in a world dominated by a single great power 
that shares our values and forms a political and social organisation. We lived and developed happily under Pax Britannica until 1942 when the Japanese defeated the British or the British evacuated Singapore. And since that moment, we've lived happily until the last few years under Pax America. And that is that is clearly over for us. So we have to have a realist approach. And that's right, we have to understand that we just have to do what we can in this very difficult and challenging international environment that we find ourselves in. And, and that really requires, oh, at the end of the day, diplomacy. I talk about we need to harden our military defence and I support calls for a higher share of GDP to be spent on military defence. And we need to harden our internal defences through anti-foreign interference. And I think we're doing a good job, I think, by you know cyber defence and so on. But ultimately, we can't ever spend enough money to defend this huge continent. We need to operate with like-minded countries in the region. We need to build coalitions. We were once very good at that, uh, but we've lost our way over the last decade. I talk about the need for a hedging strategy, which is very different than a containment strategy. It's not a distinction without a difference. There is a big difference. A hedging strategy, first of all, is very transparent and it needs to be explained to China. And we need, though, in developing a hedging strategy to work with countries that we don't like. Uh, we're starting to do that with Vietnam, in, and by which I mean uh, we don't share their values. They are uh, an authoritarian one-party uh, state run by a communist party with a poor human rights record. I think that those adjectives could be applied to another state in, in the region. Countries like Myanmar, who, you know, we don't like their human rights and terrible things that done with the Rohingya, uh, however, is still trying to resist uh, becoming a... Um, a client state of China in the same way that Cambodia and Laos have. We need to work with the Philippines. Uh, Duterte is a democratically elected president with an appalling human rights record with 85% popular support. This is, this is the, the, the new world in which we find ourselves. And so we require very flexible, adroit, uh, creative diplomacy. We've done it in the past. We built APEC. We found a solution to the Cambodian war. Um, we created a, uh, the, the Bali Coalition on People Smuggling. There's a lot that we've done and there's a lot we could do in future. And finally, I mean, I think we really do need to have a proper discussion. I think Australia is the right country to lead a move in the East Asian region. The East Asian region is the most dangerous region on Earth uh, with nuclear weapon states and huge historical enmities and unresolved territorial issues. Uh, we need a, a regional security mechanism. It's so unusual that a, a, a situ a, a, an area of the world like this with these sorts of issues doesn't have an overarching security mechanism. And Australia needs to start to take that on and, of course, needs to engage with China on that. Just uh, on the bilateral relationship uh, more narrowly, as you raised it, I think we will get the relationship back on track in time. I think the statements made by the Prime Minister this week and uh, the Treasurer last week indicate that there is a willingness and a recognition that we need to uh, stop digging. We're in a hole. We need to stop digging. And I think hopefully this week marks the end of the digging and uh, we can need to, we will, we will find ways to climb out. And one of the vehicles for doing that is to engage China on regional and multilateral uh, activities and cooperation. Absolutely. And to, um, 
to domestically treat our Chinese Australians with respect as well and uh, perhaps hopefully avoid the types of things that we saw with Erica Betts in um, the, the Senate inquiry asking Chinese Australians to declare their um, loyalty to Australia essentially, which I found was also unhelpful. I, Amy, it, it's worse than unhelpful if I certainly jump mm. in, but it, it's utterly shameful. And mm. unfortunately, the following week when the uh, Secretary of the Department of Foreign Affairs was, was invited to uh, make that comment, but basically disassociate Australia from those statements, uh, she simply said it was a tactical mistake. That Well, that's not Australian Gosh. values. It, it was not a tactical mistake. And I, and I think... I think you touched on something very important uh, earlier, and that is the issue of face. And we seem to, time after time after time, make China and make the leadership in Beijing lose face. Um, But when we do that, we also make our own Chinese communities here lose face. We need to understand that these things aren't in separate boxes. Mm, and it's truly felt. That's why when I see these things happening and that we don't see apologies from um, the Prime Minister on Erica Betts's behalf or from the person themselves, and even a distancing of any kind of apology, as you say, we're talking about it in tactical terms, that these do have ongoing flow-on effects and they were part of the list of grievances that China recently outlined um, in terms of Australia's conduct. And, and I know that it's not just the Chinese government who feels these slights. It is, as you say, Chinese Australians and even Asian Australians who start to feel alienated from their own country. Yes. Jeff, it's been absolutely fascinating chatting with you. And I've got to say, um, having read the book, we've barely scratched the surface of the amazing insights that you provide. So I do hope that uh, people listening can actually pick up the book and delve into the um, great depth and detail that you provide on these various topics that we have discussed. And thank you very much for sharing your expertise and insight with your very unique perspective. I think it is something that has been missing and it's very welcome. Well, thank you so much, Amy. It's been a great pleasure and and thank you for your thoughtful questions. You really, uh, I think it brought a number of really significant issues to the fore. Thank you so much. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. And uh, I do want to welcome onto the program Professor Mary Louise McLaws, who is an epidemiologist at UNSW, and she's also um, she's a professor of epidemiology at UNSW, and she's also a member of the World Health Organization's Advisory Panel for Infection Prevention and Control Preparedness and Response to COVID-19. And um, I was really really um, delighted to speak with Mary Louise last, or this July, feels like it was a long time ago, Um, but uh, that was all during a very um, stressful period for a number of, well, all Victorians really, um, who had been going through you know, quite a lot. And we did see the introductions of masks. And so we were talking all about masks and how um, in this second lockdown, I think it was, uh, that we should be looking at an elimination strategy and why an elimination strategy is actually a good idea. Uh, It's funny that we have now suddenly reached a point um, in an epidemiological sense where in Victoria we have officially eliminated 
the coronavirus, COVID-19 disease caused by SARS-CoV-2. Um, so it is a, an interesting point that I now welcome Mary Louise McLaws, who is a professor, as I said, um, in epidemiology. And thank you so much, Mary Louise, for coming back onto the program. Oh, it's a pleasure and congratulations to every single Victorian for an amazing effort and a wonderful result. So you deserve lots of accolades. <laughs> it does feel really good, I've got to say. It does. It also feels a little surreal. I'm not sure if anyone else feels like that, but um, I, I feel like I had been looking at, at, you know, people interstate on their Instagrams and seeing them go to restaurants and thought it was like a completely other country. Um, but, yes, now we are sitting in cafes and going to beaches and uh, even walking outside without masks on. So things have changed quite drastically from... Uh, when we last spoke, uh, Mary Louise. But I, I did want to touch or start this conversation on the subject that we had um, ended with last time, which was this discussion of elimination versus suppression, mainly because um, at a nationwide uh, level, we apparently have endorsed a suppression strategy, not an elimination strategy, um, however, it kind of looks like because uh, so many states closed their borders to each other, uh, because Victoria locked down uh, for a long enough period with um, strong enough measures, that we have really, um, for most purposes, eliminated COVID-19 in Australia um, with the odd case uh, here and there from international travellers. Um, but it seems like on a community transmission level, uh, Australia has somehow ended up with elimination. What are your thoughts on how this has kind of occurred and the fact that so many politicians had been reticent to take up an elimination strategy in a formal sense and yet this is kind of where we stand? Mm. Look, it's a, mm. it was an unforeseen... Um, mm. a, 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 great outcome that you had. I mean, the outcome that most uh, outbreak managers, I imagine, were hoping for was um, zero cases over twice an average incubation period that would put you in a very safe place for contact tracing to um, uh, get right on top of any small cluster that might happen thereafter. But... Um, your authorities uh, decided that um, they could um, call upon your suffering a little bit longer uh, to push it to 28 days. Uh, now, let me explain the difference between 28 and 14 days. Uh, for outbreak management, we use twice an average incubation period to say that a cluster outbreak has finished, like in a large um, suburb or a large block of home units where there's been an outbreak. And after 14 days for this disease, which is twice an average incubation period, you could say the cluster's over or in a hospital, the cluster's over. But if you're looking at, say, a village or, say, a large city, then you look at twice the, the um, maximum incubation period. And for this disease, it's 14 days is the maximum. So twice that is 28 days. So then your authorities decided, well, you're looking so good at this, uh, given that you'd had the occasional um, a person inadvertently um, 
either acquiring it and then spreading it in, in Shepparton and, um, uh, you know, the cleaner in the butcher's club, um, they decided to go that little bit further and ensure that they um, didn't have to deal with any uh, dispersed clusters around the state. So you effectively got elimination. But the reason that the country didn't go for elimination originally is because I think that they were toying between looking after the economy and trying to look after the Australian um, people's health. And that's a very difficult uh, balancing act. Um, which one do you do? Because you can't have both. You can have a little bit of one, a little bit of the other. And um, given that we had uh, got to very low levels in the most populated state, New South Wales, they then decided, well, the contact tracing was such that they could put out any cluster when it occurred, and New South Wales was doing very well. But Victoria had an underlying, uh, persistent, really annoying community level that they couldn't put out. And then it was um, it reignited with the uh, hotel quarantine. And then you had a bushfire from all sides. You had um, the residential aged care facility, you had in the hospital, you had the community, you had high risk groups, abattoirs. I mean, it just went on and on. And it was seeded from the quarantine hotel. And it just is beholden to us to remember it just takes one person to inadvertently cause a wave. Um, so that is why your authorities decided you've gone for the end of a cluster, let's go for broke and go for the end of an outbreak. But it doesn't mean that this will last forever because we've seen um, people coming in with exemptions on aeroplanes. Um, you know, we had a positive American flight attendant. Um, now, uh, fortunately, um, that flight attendant was found very early. Uh, we've had um, crews coming in from freight ships uh, in Western Australia. So we'll always have a threat to a small, very low level if we nationally come together and say, let's never have a shutdown like we had before. Let's help each other pounce on any small cluster uh, so we never have to deal with this again. Yes, and a case in point would be South Australia um, semi-recently having that that outbreak in their state and trying to get to the bottom of it. But they similarly pounced on things very quickly um, when it looked like it would potentially get out of hand and there were multiple chains of transmission and um, in some cases it looked like it had, it had transmitted very easily. Um, what are your thoughts on the way that places like South Australia more recently did kind of go that extra mile and do things um, that, that some people, some politicians, for example, might think is over the top. I certainly don't think it was over the top. But, you know, as we've said and discussed before, you want things to look like it's over the top because that means you're doing it properly. Mm, exactly. And sadly, politics always comes into pandemic um, 
management or outbreak management. Um, it, it seems like the politicians can't help themselves, and um, they uh, often don't rise to their very um, generously put there by their voters. And, um, you know, anyone in opposition needs to understand that they have a really important role to play to support a logical um, outbreak management. And most of Australia and the authorities have never dealt with an outbreak on this size. And, and most countries have it outside of Asia and Africa with MERS, Ebola, Zika, um, bird flu and SARS. And so they're learning as they're going and they're doing very well. Um, often what happens with outbreak managers and, and epidemiologists who uh, deal with, with these things all the time, they understand that the virus doesn't change all that much in that it has to change its infectivity. It has to be able to become more infectious. Now, this one already is, and where we've learned from the beginning, um, you know, a couple of months into it, that the reason that it was so hard to control compared to SARS-CoV-1 in 2003 is that you become infectious very early on, on before you get symptoms. Now, you may not spread it as well when without the symptoms, but you still are infectious, and that makes it very difficult to control. But that hasn't changed, just our learning, our understanding has changed. Then the next one is, does it kill and become you know, more um, deadly? And it hasn't. It, it is um, killing our elderly, our immune um, suppressed, or those with a, a second very um, severe comorbidity. So the third thing that does change is behaviour. And so in South Australia, I understand that they were concerned that they, because they believe um, people when they interview them, that um, what they're being told is the truth. But for something to become much more infectious and have a much more rapid um, period of infectivity, it would have to have changed dramatically. And we haven't seen that. It's changed a little bit, but not dramatically. And what does change is behaviour. And that also includes, sadly, um, not people being interviewed by uh, con uh, contact tracers don't feel comfortable with them and get anxious that they may get into trouble. So it's beholden to us, um, to the authorities, when they're interviewing people, to remind them that whatever they tell them isn't going to go to the police, isn't going to go to the a, um, to the Australian tax office or immigration, that it's, it is held within the Department of Health and that's it. So that they feel free to then say, actually, I'm doing a second job and it's cash in hand. I mean, that's what you saw with the occasional problem uh, with, in Victoria and that happens all the time. And this outbreak is no different than other outbreaks that has been dealt with where people don't tell the truth and the authorities run around like crazy and are kept off the real scent for a week. And the same thing happened during SARS when a um, case uh, had 
a receipt in his pocket saying that he'd been to a restaurant. And so he chose that line um, of deceit with the contact tracers and said he, he thought he caught it, must have caught it in a restaurant. But in fact, he didn't want to tell the authorities that he'd visited a sex worker. Now, had he told the authorities that, the authorities wouldn't have wasted many days trying to work out could this disease be spread like Legionnaire's disease with air conditioning in a shopping mall? And so um, outbreak managers get very short-tempered when this sort of thing happens because it places people at um, unacceptable risk. So um, people being interviewed need to be reminded once, maybe twice, and then if they continue to lie, there needs to be repercussions because it places the public at risk because the poor old contact tracers and public health officers can't do their jobs properly. So the authorities in South Australia ran around taking um, the people's word on what was happening um, and and because they, they'd never been lied to before by somebody who feared um, what would happen. And uh, so it's beholden to contact tracers to build up trust and to say to them, "You please tell me the truth. Um, if you tell me the truth within this cone of, of um, uh, anonymity, you won't get into trouble. But if I ask you again and you lie, then there will be consequences because you can't have the authorities um, shutting down um, communities because somebody hasn't told the truth. Absolutely. It's so true. And um, one of the interesting parts about this, of course, we have seen in Victoria that um, even people here, when we saw the country outbreaks, we had people who weren't um, honest with our contact traces. Um, I do want to ask about some of the other things that that contact tracers and the public health team have put in place in Victoria, for example, but I know it's being used elsewhere, is that when we see these outbreaks, given that we have such low community transmission or no community transmission in our case, um, that one thing that is new is that not only do the close contacts of a known positive case um, become get go into isolation, um, but then also those people's contacts as well seem to um, to go into isolation for some period. I wanted to understand that that advancement really that we've made in um, not just going to the first layer but then also moving to the next layer of contacts and, um, you know, whether you think that's an effective strategy and something that um, is a useful thing that we have learned from, you know, the multiple waves we've already been through. Um, look, it's not new. Uh, it's only new because um, uh, the state and um, territory authorities have time to do this. We have known since about April that people become infectious to others on day three, four, and five after being exposed. Now, 50% of all cases become infectious to others on day four, a smaller proportion on day three, and an even smaller, rarer proportion on day zero and day one, you know, less than 1%. So the proportion and probability of spread builds up at by day three. And 
the use of um, context of context is basically saying now they have time, they can go back to the context, but what they should also be doing is going back further because previously when, they, when everybody was run off their feet in New South Wales and Victoria, they went back 48 hours from the first symptom. That's not far enough. And never has been far enough. And we've been, we've seen that cluster outbreaks in New South Wales. There was one with a, a teaching hospital. It went for 30 days, and that is several incubation periods. And why did it go that long? Because they didn't go back far enough, and they didn't go to contacts of contacts. And then secondly, it just didn't stop at day th- that 33 days. It then went. Another 30 days and two other cases were found. One person was found, was, was tested positive and found to have a contact of somebody from uh, that original cluster. So what it suggests to me is, is that people slipped through their fingers because they did um, that minimum amount of think back 48 hours from when you first had your symptoms. But in fact, you should be thinking forward, uh, trying to work out who your source case is, and then thinking, all right, three days from when the source case was found, and that's why they're interviewing you now, because you're part of their um, uh, reporting of who they met. Think back from day three, after you had lunch or dinner with this person, how many people and who they were from day three, four, five. And then about day six and seven, you're starting to get symptoms anyway. But it covers the base of when you are potentially infectious from day three. So that contact of contact is kind of covering that base because they now have um, the staff and the ability to cover that. So it's, it's good practice, but they couldn't possibly have done that when you were in the middle of the, the second wave because um, you had huge numbers and they could probably only just deal with what they had. And this goes to the question of why we aren't having a national uh, contact tracing system where um, when you need help, you can call in people from Victoria, from so sorry, from New South Wales or South Australia. It certainly has to be the cluster has to be dealt with locally because it's only the local public health officers who fully understand when, for example, I work in Randwick, and a contact tracer would say, "So, uh, do you work on campus?" Um, do you go up the road to the hospital? Um, and they fully understand what Randwick looks like and what they may have to deal with. So local um, assist, uh, local management, but assistance where needed um, with uh, the contacts of the contacts. Yeah, that's uh, really, really interesting that you've um, explained that. Thank you so much for that. Does that mean that in our interviews now, um, when we're capturing contacts of contacts, are we going back beyond, or sorry, prior to 48 hours before symptoms now when we're asking um, people to recount what they'd been doing? 
It should. They should go back. Uh, WHO even says 48 hours. But, and that hasn't caught up with the, with the recent knowledge that, in fact, on, it, that, that covers day four, but doesn't cover day three, uh, you know, post-exposure. And um, I think that we're now at a level of um, safety that you can go back 72 hours just to make sure and then do contacts of the contacts back to 72 hours. Yeah, that seems like a very sensible thing. Um, hopefully that is what's happening or does happen. Um, one of the other areas um, that I have been very interested in in terms of the science and the fact that perhaps some governments and bodies haven't quite caught up with it, um, and we see these discussions particularly on Twitter amongst a lot of scientists, um, but looking at things like um, aerosols and how the coronavirus can be spread um, not just through droplets in the air that, that are kind of larger particles that drop, but these very small particles that are aerosolized. Um, that, since the beginning of the pandemic, has been something people, scientists in particular, have discussed as a possible mode of transmission. Um, however, you know, it has taken some time for science to like look at aerosols um, in more detail. And then we've seen, um, for example, Australia's uh, infection control panel um, think about aerosols, but they haven't really, um, or they hadn't up until recently, really acknowledged um, the role of aerosol transmission in any widespread sense. So I did want to understand from your perspective and also being across all the science in your roles at the moment, where we are actually at in terms of our understanding of aerosol transmission um, and whether that's something that we should be thinking about and also considering ventilation of indoor spaces um, if that is something to be concerned by. Absolutely. So um, the, the, the advisory panels to most chief medical officers include experts, really high-level experts, we have some of the best in the world, uh, for hospital infection and prevention and control. Now, we know in hospitals that there are opportunistic moments where healthcare workers can acquire an infection when they do a procedure that creates aerosols. We also know that they are very cognizant of the requirement of ventilation. However, that's been uh, overshadowed uh, recently with, you know, new um, built environments, including good airflow change, but the older style hospitals have been left behind until now. There's also what's called negative air pressure rooms that prevent um, fine aerosols going into the corridors and preventing people in the corridors from getting a face full of aerosols. And they not only have a negative air pressure, but um, so they stop things from going out into the corridors, but the air is also forced through um, a HEPA filter, which then uh, filters out any small particles so that um, if air does escape, it is uh, pretty clean. 
However, it doesn't mean that healthcare workers can work in that ward without a mask or eye protection if they're looking after people with TB, um, multiple resistant TB or, or SARS or um, any other um, disease that they've deemed potentially transmitted by aerosols. But we're learning more and more that, um, in fact, infectious diseases uh, from the lungs aren't actually just pushed out by one size particle. And my own PhD student, she's now got a doctorate, uh, Dr. Jan Grolton, uh, and I uh, looked at this with um, Professor Bill Rawlinson and Yuvan Toey, and uh, we got together. I was asked by the chief medical officer at the time, getting ready for uh, in pandemic influenza, to look at the safety of um, uh, guidelines for healthcare workers for pandemic influenza. And one of the issues was um, that uh, diseases were uh, identified as either droplet or airborne spread based on a cut point of the size of the particle. And Jan went to a lot of trouble uh, looking at the literature for me and identified that some of the methodology was incredibly flawed. At e Even nowadays with electron microscopy and all sorts of methods of identifying the size, it's very hard to keep a particle still to then size it. So even if you look at the old size particles of anything uh, greater than five microns is a droplet, anything smaller is um, an aerosol or um, airborne spread. And we decided, not we, but the previous uh, scientific uh, um, group decided that flu was airborne and others were not, like SARS in 2003. But that wasn't the case because... Jan um, got a lot of um, patients with influenza A and B and other uh, respiratory viruses and got the patients to speak through a, um, an Anderson sampler. It was a sampler that, push, that you, as you're speaking or coughing or, you know, um, or just breathing, it uh, sizes the particles through membranes. And we identified that, in fact, influenza is not just airborne spread, it's droplet as well. Uh, and when I was on uh, WHO panel looking at this vexing decision about what is airborne, what is a droplet spread, I reminded them of our paper, but there was also other authors had also identified this, but the scientific community chose not to be woke by this in 2000, from 2009 to, say, about 2015. And they just kind of ignored it. And then a scientist, an engineering a scientist, um, I think she was a physical engineer from Queensland, was getting very anxious that we, as a scientific infection control group, weren't taking airborne spread seriously. But we were. We just weren't communicating it properly for infection prevention and control people in the hospitals who sit on these scientific committees to advise the chief medical officers in Australia. 
So in the hospitals, they know about these things. But in the community, um, we hadn't really focused on um, educating the community. So we set about rewriting the guidelines, and the guidelines came out on the 9th of July and very clearly state that there is droplet and contact or touch. Uh, uh, a lovely professor in Hong Kong, uh, Professor Lai, calls it touch transmission. You won't get it unless you touch a high um, touch area that's been contaminated. So touch contamination or droplet. But there's also airborne spread. And if you add poor ventilation, then you're going to catch it by these tiny little particles that hang in the air for much longer than the droplets do. And there's been outbreaks on buses and a famous one in a restaurant uh, because of poor ventilation. And then um, we set out to remind hospital infection control experts about the need for ventilation in hospitals. And then they became mindful that the older style hospitals hadn't been keeping up with this ventilation. And that um, I kept talking to the public about the importance of ventilation in restaurants and shopping malls. And um, I think the new um, updated guidelines has helped to bring to the um, uh, forefront the importance of ventilation for the public. Because it's, it it's not just all about hospitals, it's about the public, because that's where most COVID's being caught, not in hospitals. And I think now um, uh, infection prevention and control experts are now woke to the importance of ventilation in public, in offices, in um, buses and trains. Mm. Um, that's really great to hear. I did want to also apply that um, ventilation question to places that we are seeing opening up more, like obviously schools have returned um, you know, much sooner than offices, but we are seeing that Victoria, for example, is um, allowing 50% of workers to go into their office and it started up at, as 25%. So in even those environments where you see a large number of people congregating in, um, you know, open air office spaces, um, perhaps they do have air conditioning, but um, how do you ensure that places like a classroom or an office where there are people working beside each other, how do you, and obviously not potentially wearing masks because they won't be mandatory um, in those spaces in most cases, um, apart from places like shopping centres or supermarkets, but how do we ensure that those type of spaces are adequately ventilated? Mm. Uh, you get your um, um, air conditioning uh, engineer out and they will then be able to test and tell you the airflow change. So there's uh, two measures, the old-fashioned air change per hour, ACH, or the litre per second per person. Uh, and they kind of equate to each other, but they're on slightly different scales. And so you get your N in engineer to come out and look at that and also ask him or her to ensure that the airflow change is 100% um, fresh air from outside because sometimes air conditioning uh, doesn't source 
um, it's air from outside. It just basically recirculates. And that's sometimes what happens in some aged care facilities um, uh, because it's expensive to source fully um, 100% clean air change. But that's what should be happening during COVID. So get your engineer to come out. Thank you. That's uh, excellent advice. I'm sure lots of people will find that very helpful. Um, there are a couple of things I really would love to discuss before we have to finish off. Um, one of them is around long COVID, um, which is the term, the colloquial term people are using for um, symptoms that people continue to have after the virus has cleared their system and they're no longer shedding um, active virus. And these are symptoms <clears throat> that are very wide ranging um, and can be, you know, things like uh, brain fog, insomnia, fatigue. They can also um, be breathlessness, being very short of breath. Um, there are so many different types of symptoms that it sounds that people are um, experiencing, including neurological symptoms. And there have been early studies to come out to suggest that um, SARS-CoV-2 um, that becomes the disease COVID-19 can also damage and affect a number of organs and systems within the body. So there is a concern um, it doesn't seem to be a very widespread concern um, among everyone, but certainly I know a lot of uh, people have raised this as being a concern, um, the, the potential medium to long-term effects that some people who become infected with COVID-19 may continue to experience. And given that this is a novel virus, a novel coronavirus, um, there certainly is a concern uh, among some parts about the unknown nature of the virus and the unknown nature of these long-term effects. So um, I would love to understand from your perspective uh, in terms of this, um, this issue, because we are managing it a lot by saying, well, you know, we obviously want to prevent deaths, um, but clearly preventing transmission also means we're preventing another group of people from potentially becoming chronically ill. Um, so I, I wonder when you're thinking about these types of considerations um, around not just the immediate effects of a virus, but the long-term effects, um, what are some of the things that we're beginning to understand about the coronavirus in this sense? And what type of things would you be potentially concerned by um, as an epidemiologist? Mm -hmm. So thank you for bringing up um, long hauler or long COVID. I think it's a great term. It tells you everything in two words. Um, and it's something that uh, when I was first called to WHO in Geneva for the um, meeting about the ro roadmap to what we don't know and let's develop a roadmap, uh, it wasn't mentioned. So we talked about... Um, uh, therapies, vaccines. Um, I wasn't on those two groups, but we were, um, as epidemiologists or other experts in other areas, we were informed about all of these important issues. And there hadn't been enough time passed for people to realise that people weren't getting well in a couple of weeks. And in fact, we had another meeting, uh, but this time not in person, um, electronically in July, in the first week of July. And again, um, those that were presenting the clinical epidemiology did not present us with long COVID. And it really only came to pass a little after that with an English physician uh, who was a 
a bike rider, very fit. Um, I can't remember how old he was, probably, let's say, in his 30s or early 40s, and very fit man. And he didn't understand why uh, he wasn't feeling very well and thought he'd uh, look for a support group. And uh, he uh, put out, you know, on these um, uh, electronic Facebooks and, and other areas um, about how he wasn't getting well. And he was one of the um, patients that hadn't been hospitalised. And I don't like the term mild COVID because I think it really disrespects the effects um, that people feel uh, when they're kept at home with COVID. So I prefer the term non-hospitalised COVID uh, to respect the different um, degrees of impact that it has had on people not hospitalised. So those that go to hospital are, are followed up quite carefully. And there was this impression that, of course, people with severe um, COVID or moderate COVID that I'd either gone to ICU that weren't um, mechanically ventilated or those that were, were, that was expected that they would have some brain fog or some um, long-term manifestations because that's commonplace, particularly for people who've been ventilated, mechanically ventilated. And those that were not hospitalised were not uh, surveilled for their long-term follow-up. They were surveyed for um, whether or not they were infectious and they, they didn't have the classic symptoms and they didn't have a positive test, so therefore they were deemed uh, recovered. But in fact, uh, we now have seen that there are several studies out that have found over a third of um, people have not improved after two weeks. And over a quarter of those between 18 and 34 uh, haven't um, uh, recovered, and over a third between 35 and 49 haven't, and so forth. And so about one in five individuals uh, have, uh, without a chronic medical condition, so no um, baseline ill health, uh, have not recovered um, by day 16. So this is now becoming a concern because 18 to even, you know, 39-year-olds are going to be our future leaders. They're going to be future parents and future highly productive people in whatever life um, uh, style they choose. And you do not want them to go into this with brain fog, which you've mentioned, cardiovascular illness you've mentioned. And one reason that they haven't been picked up is because a classic uh, chest X-ray hasn't been picking up some of the uh, ongoing uh, myocardial, sorry, myocardial uh, inflammation. And they've needed an MRI test to actually pick it up. So um, we're now learning more about, about these um, uh, problems and, um, and thickening of, um, of uh, lung um, tissue uh, and causing dysfunction. And we don't know how long this will go for. There's also the classic um, uh, depression, and that's commonplace after a serious illness. So, uh, th and this isn't the first time that this long hauler effect has been experienced. And I've received 
um, emails from people saying that they had um, a serious viral infection and that they felt depressed or that they felt um, that they weren't at their level of functioning again. So we are now becoming less um, uh, uh, dismissive of people's um, uh, reporting that they aren't bouncing back. And I think that um, there should be more studies done by GPs to follow up um, their um, patients to see how long it does take and what can help. And monoclonal antibody um, therapy, well, it was actually polyclonal therapy that um, Donald Trump had, may actually help, but we um, it's expensive to produce, um, takes a long time, and uh, it's only been tested in a small group of people and hasn't been tested in those that haven't gone um, into hospital. So there are many things we don't know about actually what might help uh, non-hospitalised COVID uh, patients uh, when they recover to actually get back to normal functioning. There was one paper that suggested also that there may be a genetic predisposition, but it was one paper only. And when you get tested for COVID, you don't get tested for this genetic predisposition for long hauler. Um, if, you, if it was cheap enough and you could do it and it was genetic, then maybe then you could go on to something like monoclonal antibodies if it turns out to be a good thing or some other uh, therapeutic uh, such as um, dexamethasone, a small dose. We don't have many off what we call off-label use for therapeutics for um, COVID, whether it be severe, moderate or mild or non-hospitalised. Um, we, we just don't have enough at the moment, sadly. So um, the best advice is don't get COVID mm. if you're young so that you don't get long hauler. Yes, absolutely. Um, I'm so grateful to your input on that because it's something that I don't think we're having a conversation about in any huge amount of depth publicly and certainly in the media um, in Australia, but I know there are conversations going on in other parts, so it's great to shine a light on it. Um, and, of course, to remember that there is a role for masks still, even if they're not mandatory, that we should think about wearing them, and certainly those in vulnerable groups, um, like those who are immunocompromised or have comorbidities, I would say personally, you know, it would make sense to, to wear masks. Um, so I wonder whether that's something that, uh, you know, we can use our own discretion for in terms of the level of precautions we might take in the future. Um, but yeah, I, I, unfortunately, we've run out of time. But I do want to say a great thank you to you, Mary Louise, um, for your time today. And hopefully we can check in and catch up on um, all the other topics we haven't got to touch on today. But we've gone through so much today that I am so grateful to you. So thank Anytime. you so much. Anytime. Stay well. I'm Amy Mullins, and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.